You're listening to episode 377 of the New World Order. My name's Klaatu, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about Fedora Silverblue. Fedora Silverblue is a distribution. You might think at first that it's a spin of Fedora, but actually a spin or a remix would be taking the Fedora image and applying, for instance, a new desktop to it, or a specific set of packages before producing an ISO for people to download. Silverblue is a restructuring of the Fedora distribution. So it is Fedora Linux, but it is packaged and distributed, and it runs in a completely unique fashion from standard Fedora Linux. Specifically, Fedora Silverblue runs with an immutable operating system at its core, and then it uses what I'll I'll briefly call a a layer to provide user customization. Now, I'm saying I'm briefly calling it a layer because it's not really a layer. I feel like the layer analogy is used for a lot of different technologies, and it does kind of fit in a way here, but I don't want to suggest that it is something that it is not. What it is more like is a Git repository. If you think of Fedora Silverblue, and again, this isn't exactly correct, but this is this will get us really close to understanding what's going on. If you think of Fedora Silverblue as an operating system managed by Git, then you're very close to how it structures itself. What's actually happening is it is using a technology called OS Tree, which uses a very Git-like structure in that it has a main branch, or a trunk, you might even say. They don't, but you could say that there's a trunk, and that would be that operating system core that I was talking about, that immutable, that is immutable means it cannot be mutated. It's unchangeable. This core operating system component is booted and loaded when you start your computer, and that main branch, that core, represents a state of a repository, of a, of a collection of software. By using this technology called OS Tree, you are able to graft a new branch off of that core, off of that trunk, and that new branch can contain any number of changes. So for instance, you might install some new software. So now that branch has that software loaded into it. Here's a description of this process from the OS Tree man page itself. OS Tree is a tool for managing multiple bootable versioned file system trees, or just tree for short. In the OS tree model, operating systems no longer live in the physical slash root directory. Instead, they parallel install to the new top level slash OS tree directory. Each installed system gets its own slash OS tree slash deploy slash state root directory. State root is the new term for OS name. Unlike RPM or DPKG, OS tree is only aware of complete file system trees. It has no built-in knowledge of what components went into creating the file system tree. It goes on to say, it is possible to use OS tree in several modes. The most basic form is to replicate pre-built trees from a build server. Usually these pre-built trees are derived from packages. You might also be using OS tree underneath a higher level tool which computes file system trees locally. It must be emphasized that OS tree only supports read-only trees. To change to a different tree, that is upgrade or downgrade or install software even, a new tree is checked out and a three-way merge of configuration is performed. The currently running tree is not ever modified. It is immutable. The new tree becomes active upon a system reboot. So this is what they're talking about when they say that the operating system 
is immutable on silver blue. You run this this image of an operating system. The operating system essentially doesn't know how it got to where it is. It doesn't know that it has had RPMs installed. It doesn't understand. It has no database of packages. It is simply in the state that it is when it is booted up. That's all it really knows. And it doesn't ever change. You can't go in and remove a package that you no longer want on your operating system, or indeed add a package that you feel is necessary. For instance, a, a video card driver. If, if you're running an NVIDIA uh, graphics card, which I am on my desktop computer, you can't go in and tell it to to add an NVIDIA graphics driver module, because that would that would need to change that file system image and there's no way to do that now there's a huge caveat here and that is as the man page itself says in order to change that to upgrade or downgrade or install software you have to check out a new tree essentially perform a merge and then reboot now your image is well it's a new image it is immutable and that's what you're running. And again, it doesn't know how it got there. It doesn't know that you've added a repository, added an RPM, and then rebooted. All it knows is that it is what it is. Now, this may all seem really, really crazy to you, and indeed it it, it kind of seems a little bit crazy to me. When I first heard about it, it, it sounded just crazy enough to maybe be something to look into. I don't know how fresh of an idea this is. I know that there have been other systems, such as Nix OS, and I think even the Geeks system a little bit, G-U-I-X, I think that may share something in relation to this. And I feel a little bit guilty for my first foray into this strange new world of a completely different structure for uh, the Linux file system layout is Fedora Silverblue, because it, it, I feel like I've gone, I, I've I've known about the the little independent projects working towards this reimagining of how things are are structured i've ignored them and i've just gone for the big obvious mainstream one and and skipped all the other ones and so i i do i feel a little bit strange about having done it this way but i'll be honest and my my interest in fedora silver blue has largely been c constrained to the container aspect. And that's really kind of why I felt like it was maybe time to talk about Fedora Silverblue now, because in the previous episodes of GNU World Order, you'll have you'll have explored a couple of different tools with me, dear listener. We have talked about NSenter and Unshare, which uh, allowed us to sort of look at and enter the name, the kernel namespaces to which different PIDs have been assigned. We looked at LXC a couple of episodes ago, so that's the Linux container project. And uh, a couple of episodes ago as well, we we looked at that blog post about um, Cheroot and container technology throughout the ages since what was it 1979 or something crazy early like that. So at this point, I feel like at this point in in the GNU World Order, I feel like we're we're kind of talking about containers, and I've made it as clear as I felt it necessary that containers are a big deal, and that I you know I mean none of us know where containers are going. We don't know if it's just a fad. Uh, we don't know if it's if it's the new model of computing. We we we're don't we're in the middle of it. We're we're we we can't predict what kind of effect this is actually going to have on 
on anything. But what I can say is that there, there there's a lot of convergence happening here with containers. You've got, for instance, on an Android on an Android phone, you don't have containers, but you do have kind of this system of well here's the image of the OS and here's all the different applications that can run on it and here's a permission structure for those applications to access specific points on the file system. So when you install an app it may ask you or tell you that in order for it to run it requires access to your camera or to your photos or, or whatever and you must grant it explicit permission to go through that portal and access the data on your SD card. On on Linux, of course, you have these days on the cloud, you've you've got containers all over the place. On Linux itself, on the desktop, you've got flat packs. And Flatpak very very specifically has a portal structure, uh, an API called the, the portal system. Uh, and it, it allows you to access or or it allows the developer develop, uh, creating a flat pack to to access things outside of that sandbox that the flat pack represents and we've talked about flat pack before and we know that it is essentially a container it's the container model which actually is also flat packs are, are based on OS tree as well so more convergence from different places we've got silver blue sort of combining these ideas from containers and OS tree into a desktop distribution. We've got Kubernetes and OpenShift and things like that on, on the servers for clouds, creating a distributed uh, computing model that, that, that is based largely on ephemeral containers that spin up and spin down as needed, that can access data outside of those containers in order to keep the configurations and the uh, data stores consistent and so on. So I think Silverblue is kind of interesting to look at, if if only because of its because of of how it how of how it relates to all of these other technologies. And indeed, that is kind of what what Silverblue itself pitches itself as. So it says in on there, if you go to fedoraproject.org/en-us/fedora-silverblue, you find its description is Fedora Silverblue is an immutable desktop operating system. It aims to be extremely stable and reliable. It also aims to be an excellent platform for developers and for those using container-focused workflows. So it, it is aware of its of its proximity to, to containers and to that sort of sense that you might be someone who is working with environments and the environments are not necessarily persistent but they are on demand and there are there are lots of different advantages to that and i think exploring silver blue kind of gives you a combination of the advantages and i won't say disadvantages but i will say some of the hurdles that you might encounter or or that we're all encountering as we uh, collectively if i may if we as we try to sort of combine these these ideas of containers with with just normal computing because obviously containers are working well for the cloud right that 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 model has proven itself people are quite happy with that i mean not everyone universally but i'm saying the people doing the work on the ground providing the services are saying and have said loud and clear this container thing is really working for us and that's why it's taking off i mean it's not containers aren't they're not they're not happening because of an agenda they're happening because people have adopted it in mass and are using that technology to scale up 
to scale out, to develop quickly, to manage services, to orchestrate this, these massive, massive um, distributed services across the world. It's, it's something that's working quite well. And so that's what's happening. It's being used. And I guess the question that we kind of have to ask ourselves is can that can the can whatever benefits the cloud is experiencing from containers, can that be translated in any way over to the desktop experience? And, and indeed, who knows, maybe eventually to the mobile experience if, if convergence of of the desktop and mobile experiences ever actually happens. And I know Ubuntu had really given it a, a go to make that happen didn't happen uh and i don't know where that i don't know who's picked up that ball i mean i know that a couple of people have but i mean i don't know who's really trying to make it happen now I'm not sure but whatever whatever we're in store for i think it's important to kind of to do this thought experiment except it's not just a thought experiment it exists in silver blue of how do containers pertain to real life users who just want to get computing done but before we dive into Silverblue, let's talk a little bit about these potential benefits, why we might want to look at container technology on a desktop when, when frankly, desktops have been perfectly fine without containers for, for decades now. Um, and there are a couple of different advantages here. There are three that I can think of. One is portability and autonomy. Two is security. And three is, uh, I'll, I'll just call it, I'll call it consistency. So the first one, portability and, uh, and autonomy, would, would address the issue of, let's say you want to run two different versions of an application on the same system. That can cause problems. On, on Linux, it can cause problems. There are workarounds. If, you, if you're trying to run foo and bar, while uh, whereas foo requires uh, libpng12 and bar requires libpng14, that's, that's basically the same library, right? libpng. But you could compile the, the, the one that is not the default on your system yourself, you could compile it and name it something specific, like libpng12, uh, let's say, maybe 14 shipped on your system, so you're compiling this old version that you need for this legacy application, libpng12, and then you compile the legacy application so that it points specifically to libpng12, so that there's no confusion. Don't, don't point to libpng14, I know that you need 12 specifically for some reason. I'm making a lot of these examples up, but they're kind of echoes of experiences that I have had. So you compile it to point very specifically to a specific version that has also been compiled separately. Now, the problem here is, number one, that there can still be issues because maybe libpng12 has some files that wouldn't get named in any kind of special way, and it might still collide with libpng14 for whatever reason. Who knows? It could be something simple. It could be something that, that the make file just doesn't account for. You, you never know. Um, and, and in truth, it works fine for libpng, so I probably shouldn't have used that as an example. But some, some lib out there could have that issue of where there could be a conflict beyond the obvious files that you would be renaming. And if makefile doesn't take that into, a, into account, then it could be problematic. And, and even then, you could probably find a way to, to link back to a specific location, well not probably, you can, you can usually find a way to link back to a specific location and, and avoid these kinds of issues. But I think the, the, the problem as it actually manifests in practice is that people just aren't going to compile those applications. That's just not something that, that most users are going to want to do 
for for the applications that they may or may not want to run. More typically, people are simply going to install a package as provided by their distribution. I mean, that's kind of the intent. And and going outside of that system and doing something wacky just doesn't always it it's not always easy. You can argue that the that you shouldn't have to go outside your package manager and do the wacky thing anyway and and so on but in practice for maximum flexibility none of this would be an issue and you would just be able to install this application that requires this version of the library alongside a different version of an application or a different application that requires a different library set it just shouldn't be an issue at all it shouldn't be something that you have to think about and indeed we've seen operating systems that have solved this problem we've had it since i think next which is probably what the 90s next of course is the precursor to mac os x at the time and it has self-contained application directories we've we've seen projects take advantage of this we've seen rocks filer on linux use the, this concept of an apter a directory called .apter or or you know project name .apter and that extension .apter tells the system run this thing as if though all all the linking has been done internally all everything that this application needs to run this executable needs to run is contained in this folder it worked pretty well from what I understand, I've never actually used it myself, but it was essentially re-implemented in app images, which of course we've talked about on this show before. App images, the same idea. There's this, there's a, a folder with some special extension or in some special format. It used to be .iso, now it's some kind of squash fs thing, and everything inside of that of that folder, that directory, is is supportive of the main executable that needs to to, to run. And so everything is kind of self-contained in a in a very literal like it's 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 very much right there self-contained um, sense. Now Flatpak has taken this concept and blown it out a little bit, ex expanded it, given it a couple of extra layers, so that rather than saying okay, well everything that this Flatpak needs to run is in a, a a specific folder. We have support packages, like little SDKs, as it were. We have these support layers that we'll install for this group of Flatpaks, and all of the, those Flatpaks will point back to this release. And so we have we have we have a foundation, a standardized foundation upon which all of those applications can then build. And if if something's not in that standard foundation, then you can include it in your flat pack, and that way you don't need anything underneath your flat pack other than you know what you're providing. But but if there's something huge and big that you don't want to throw into a flat pack, that's fine. We probably have that foundation for you. So if, for instance, your application uses I don't know the cute widget set, then we'll install that at the base level, and you can refer back to it in your flat pack. And and rest assured that when anyone installs your flat pack, they will also be installing the cute widget set layer, and so on. Autonomy. It's important because no one wants to worry about every little library required for an application. So that's an important one. Security is another one. I'm not going to say too much about this because that's always a moving target anyway, but you get the idea. There's a container. As far as that container knows, it is the only thing that exists in the world. It is a complete system. Of course, it's not actually. It doesn't even have a kernel. It's it's leeching off of the kernel that's running the container, but as far as it knows, it's a complete system. 
And so if some exploit takes advantage of the code running inside of that container, well, that exploit can only see as far out as the container walls itself. When it reaches the root layer of your file system or of its file system, it believes that that's the actual root of everything, but it's it's not. It's just the fake root or it's the, the container's root um, of the file system. So it doesn't have access to important things running on your actual system. All it can do is spoil what's ever inside of that container. And since the container is by design disposable, you should be able to shut down a container and lose no data, it doesn't really matter that the exploit has taken advantage of the container. In theory. Like I say, moving target. And then the third and final one, I guess, consistency. And this, I think, applies mostly to people who deal with containers on an everyday basis. And that's what Silver Blue's documentation suggests, that they are targeting people who have to deal with these disposable self-contained environments on an everyday basis. That's their world. That's where they live. They're developing code. They're, they're working inside of these containers. And so to have that same model applied to their desktop, in a way, makes a lot of sense. Uh, you can kind of get a flavor for this if you start using Python with Python environments. Python environments are well, they're little, they're little environments. They're, they're really just almost a cheroot in a way. Because what it says is that, okay, well, here's a new environment. So Python is going to point to a local thing, a local executable called Python. And that's going to, that's going to run all of the code. And, and as far as that local Python executable knows, everything that it has access to is located here in this environment directory. And so the idea is that you would install all of your Python modules locally into this directory. And because you're in a in the special environment mode, Python knows about those directories. It knows where to find or those modules. It knows where to find them and it runs your code perfectly perfectly happily. Now, if you leave that environment and try to execute your code, suddenly it doesn't know where the modules are and it fails to run. What's the advantage to this? It seems like a real pain in the neck. Well, the advantage is that you're now not going to send your code to other people without being very certain that you are also sending them the correct modules. So you've self-contained everything, sort of forcing the developer to be to have an awareness of what's on their system. And of course, you've also empowered them to use a different version of a module than maybe they got on their system when they when they started up their computer, when they installed uh, Linux or, or whatever. They, they, they got, I don't know, PyFu version 1, but in their latest code, what they really want to do is develop against PyFu version 2. And they can do that because they've got this environment that protects them from their outside, from their outside environment, uh, their native environment, and provides them with this little minimalistic, bare-bones, private environment into which they can put all the latest modules and they can keep track of those modules and then they can ship their code knowing exactly what they need to to have accompanied with that code. Same idea here. You can create containers, you know exactly what's in the container, you know what you need to put into the container for the container to work, and so you have a greater awareness of, of what's actually going to have to run on your target systems. And you're also, of course, enabled to use whatever version of whatever library you need in order for your code to work correctly. So those are the the potential advantages. There are stumbling blocks and whether or not the 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 benefits versus the the costs are worth it um is up to you really as a user, but I do think that it's it's significant 
and important to look at because we don't know. This could be the way that we are headed. This could be a direction that Linux or that computers or that both are are going in, and we should be aware of that. We should we should stay uh, relevant. So let's take a look at Silver Blue together. But first, let's go get some coffee. That'll be important, and then we'll install, set up, and start using Fedora Silver Blue 32. <laughs> With coffee, installing Silverblue, it's actually a little bit of an anticlimax. As long as you've installed Fedora or CentOS or RHEL before, the installation of Silverblue is exactly the same. In fact, it is so much the same, you will probably find yourself checking to make sure that you've actually downloaded Silverblue. That's what I did. I, I was I was going through the process and I literally checked to make sure that I'd burned the correct image to my USB drive because I thought this just doesn't seem like it's different. This is really, really similar. And, and it is. It's very, very, it is the same. If you are used to the Anaconda Fedora installer, then you are familiar with how to install Silverblue. So once you've done that, you reboot and you go through a setup screen, which I think I think this part is actually also the new way that Fedora does things. And I I mean the the last time I installed Fedora, as I recall, I thought that that setup stage was during the the install phase. So I'm not sure if this has been moved out into its own thing for Silverblue or whether that's just a new thing that Fedora is doing. I don't I don't remember. But there's the setup stage, and I will say that the setup stage is a little bit weird because during the install, if you choose a keyboard layout, such as Dvorak instead of QWERTY, then you will be surprised to find that that keyboard layout is not inherited for the setup stage. It'll, it'll, it defaults, as far as I can tell, to the US keyboard layout, you know, QWERTY layout, for the setup. And the setup is really only about I think two things. It's you giving yourself a username and defining a password. There is no way that I could see to change, for instance, the UID or the group ID or anything like that. It seems very, very basic. You give it a name, you give it a password, that's all you get. There is a button for enterprise login, but as far as I could tell, that was something that was to hook your 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 login into like an LDAP system or something. So I don't think that was what I wanted. So setting up once you're done the setup, it drops you into the GNOME desktop, logged in as the user you've just created for yourself, and from here on out, you, you know your first your first experience with Silverblue having been exactly the same for the install, s similar or the same for the setup. Your first experience with the Silverblue desktop, once again, you'll kind of be checking to make sure you're actually running Silverblue. It is exactly the same. It's a little bit more minimal than, for instance, the desktop of standard Fedora workstation. I, I couldn't find a whole lot of applications pre-installed, so I think, in fact, there was Firefox and a text editor and a terminal, a file manager, but that's really it. Like, there's there's really not a whole lot there. No LibreOffice, no, um, I don't know, GIMP or, or whatever else distributions come up with, come with pre-installed these days. So that was a little bit 
surprising. But on the surface, like if you're just clicking around and thinking, okay, now let me see the new the new exciting silver blue stuff, you're not going to see it. it. It's exactly the same as what you would you would get from from Fedora or CentOS. It is it's just an operating system. It's it's Linux with a GNOME desktop. So if that's all you ever saw of silver blue, you might be underwhelmed. Um, oh, and by the way, once you get so if you've defined a different keyboard, it ignored it for the setup. Once you get into the GNOME desktop, that that keyboard is loaded as your default uh, keyboard, and you're good to go from there. So it, it was just for the setup, strangely, that it just sort of throws out your keyboard preference. Everything else co- completely respects that choice. Okay, so once you've um, once you've logged in, you're looking around, you're not seeing anything different. Migrating data, let's talk about that for a moment, because if you're like me, you have at least some data to carry over to this new install. Now, this isn't my primary install. I have not, I have not for the record, I've not switched to Silverblue as my full-time operating system. This is an experiment and little more. It's an enjoyable experiment, but but this is not, I'm not taking my, my real home partition or anything and, and and converting it into silver blue. And I do say converting because there is there are some important differences. So if you kind of poke around, you'll notice that home slash home is not slash home. Slash home is a symlink to slash var slash home. Not that big of a deal really. Symlinks are pretty um pretty flexible on Linux. That's not we can do this. We've you may have even seen, you may have used a system where home isn't slash home, where it's where it's buried somewhere else. That's not completely uncommon. So seeing that it's been moved to slash var slash home slash clatu or whatever, it's not that surprising or scary. What is interesting though is that some of the some of the paths become a little bit convoluted once you introduce some of these abstractions that you're going to be dealing with in practice. And I guess in order to talk about these abstractions, we need to kind of skip past what I'm talking about now and getting into how software is installed. So take it on on faith that slash home and slash bin and slash um, opt, these are not real places, they're symlinks. So home is in var, opt is in var, uh, bin is just pointing to user bin, sbin is pointing to user sbin, little things like that. Generally speaking, not a big deal but there are path differences. Be aware of that. Now we'll move on to installing software. There are two ways on Silverblue that you're expected to install software, and really there's only one way, but actually there are three ways. If that sounds confusing, that's because it is. Um, the, the lines that they draw in the sand are not super clear, I have found. Here's how they here's, here's the theory. For most everything that you intend to use on Silverblue, you are expected to install it as a flat pack. So if you open up GNOME Software, that's the name of the of the application, it's called Software, you open that up, you'll see that there are some applications available. Exciting things like GNOME Calculator, GNOME Calendar, little things like that. Not a whole lot, to be honest. And it, it turns out that, for instance, if I click on GNOME Calculator here, it tells me that it is a flat pack. Now, now if you've ever used GNOME Software on another distribution, or just on Fedora standard, you'll know that it handles both RPMs and Flatpak. So this can be a little bit disorienting because now you're looking at something and you're not too sure whether this is an RPM or a Flatpak. By default on Silverblue, you only get Flatpaks. That's what you're seeing listed here. So the GNOME calculator says that it is uh, version 3.38.1. It's a free license. And the source of this is registry.com 
fedoraproject.org. And if I click around elsewhere on the interface, I can get a little bit more information, and it, it confirms that the format of this package is a flat pack. So if I were to install that, it looks like it's already installed. Um, so if I were to install that, then I would be installing this application as a flat pack, which means that if I click on my activities or or hit my um, penguin key and then type in calculator, it launches it. I'm I'm using a flat pack right now. This is a GUI flat pack application. We know sort of how those are packaged and how those are distributed and that those rely upon the different flat pack um, SDK layers or whatever they're called. That's fine. It works. It works as expected. The selection of software in GNOME software, uh, the selection of applications in GNOME software is rather limited because it has it's pointing to exactly one place and that is registry.fedoraproject.org. So they they have a limit. They have a limited selection of of, of packages of, of flat packs that they have on offer currently. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that they're adding every day to to that selection, but it is pretty limited right now. And in the documentation for Silverblue, they recommend pretty much right away that you install or that you um, that you provide support for um, FlatHub. FlatHub being sort of the the premier generic vendor neutral, whatever term you, you want to use, repository for for flat packs to the general public. You can post an application, a flat pack on FlatHub. People can download your flat pack ref and install it on their system. So in order to get to there on Silverblue, you have to tell GNOME software where where to look, how, how to get how to get that FlatHub repository, how to how to add that FlatHub repository to its to its configuration. It's pretty simple. The instructions are right on flathub.org. It's it's under the quick setup. It tells you how to set it up on Fedora. And as it turns out, that's the exact process that you use on Silverblue. No exceptions there. It's all through Flatpak itself. So this is not, you're not downloading an RPM and adding a repository. You're, you're downloading a Flatpak ref, a reference file to Flathub and installing and making it available to GNOME software and and a flat pack indeed underneath that layer uh, underneath the application you know it's it's being it's being used by GNOME software you don't have to do it through the GUI you can do it in on the um in your terminal just as as you would normally i think the command is something like i don't know flat pack remote add flathub.flatpackref or something like that don't don't type that in because i'm i'm wrong but it's something something like that. So once you do that, then Flatpak is aware that this repository exists out there on the internet, and now you can do things like Flatpak and install Flathub org.gnome or uh, org.gimp.gimp, for instance, and that will pull the GIMP application from Flathub repository and install it on your system. Unless I got the command wrong, I'm rattling them off the top of my head, and the Flatpak commands are by no means simple. They are over complex, um, verbose. And awkward, but that's that's the way that you would do that. It works well enough. One one issue that I had when doing this, I I, I attempted to do it as much by the docs as possible the first time I did this, and so I, I went to GNOME Software, I added the repository, and GNOME Software is just eerily eerily quiet. It does not tell you what's going on. I don't know why they're doing this, but there's no status bar, there's no animation for for working, you know, there's no spinning spinning wheel, there's no blinking dots, nothing. So I do the process and it just sits there and I think it's crashed because that's what it looks like has happened. It's a blank white screen with no indication that it is processing my request. Um, 
the the only eventually I gave up on that and I started doing things just in the terminal and eventually through a, a series of trial and error I was copying a bunch of data from a, a backup drive onto my onto the Silverblue system and so I, I I let that go overnight and when I got up in the morning to check on things I discovered that not only had all my data copied over successfully, but also GNOME software had caught up to all of the data it was pulling from the repository, and now it was acting normal. It was acting like an application ought to act. It just wasn't giving me any indication that that's what it was doing, so that was a little bit unsettling. And to this day, I find GNOME software a little bit unsettling in the same way. Like, I'll, I'll ask it to do something, and instead of sort of like giving me an indication that it is processing my request in any way, it just shows me a blank screen. It's, it's it's unnerving. I don't know why that's the direction that that goes in. I don't know if that's a conscious choice or if or if they just haven't gotten around to implementing a working animation. And and I'm the guy who hates working animations. I think they're silly, but just some kind of indication that yes, the process the 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 request has been received and we're working on it. Okay, so that's GNOME software. You add a flat pack repository, then you're able to install flat packs from both flat hub and registry.fedoraproject.org. And that's what they expect you to do. And I will admit, there are more flat packs out there than you might think. I mean, for instance, I certainly think of flat packs as GUI applications. I mean, you definitely don't want to try to use a flat pack from a terminal. That's a miserable experience. You do not want to have to go through that. That's horrible. And that's what Flatpak says, and they have stated that several times. I don't agree with that decision, but that is what the that's what they've said that they are not aiming for the terminal as a target they are aiming for graphical applications love it or hate it that's what their their mission their stated mission is so if you look at at gnome software and you're searching around you do find things that i found surprising for instance there's there are fonts that are distributed as flat packs, which I did not, I, I didn't know they were. See, right there, I just, I just now, just now typed in font, and for, for a whole sentence, it was just a white screen. And once again, I thought, okay, well, I guess it's crashed, or I've, I've entered a, a bad query, I need to change it. It's just, it's so silent during those, those moments. I don't know. Nope, now it's scrolling. <laughs> um, man. Bitstream, um, Deja Vu, you know all these fonts. These are familiar to you if you've ever used Linux. Yeah, fonts. Distributed as flat packs. I didn't know that fonts could be distributed as flat packs. So that was interesting. There's other stuff too. Uh, tweak, Gnome Tweaks. That's here, eventually, maybe. Yep, there it is. Okay, yep, Gnome Tweaks, and you can install that, and then you can you can change your GNOME settings beyond what GNOME settings provides, and so on. So that that is the intended primary install method of software. It is through the Flatpak system. Now, along with that comes a couple of surprises that you may not expect. For instance, let's say you're running Foo, and Foo expects your software to be in home.local.share.foo, or sorry, dot .local slash share slash foo. That, that's a fairly common setup. That's what the dot .local folder is for. It is the standardized location for dot .configuration files. Well, not for dot .config. That would be in dot .config. Okay, so it's somewhat standardized location for these generally scattered hidden folders that, that used to clutter up your Linux home directory. Put them all in dot .local slash share, and it kind of mirrors slash user slash share, and it's a, a standardized place for them all to go, and it's kind of neater and a little bit more consolidated. It's good stuff. Problem 
is that flat packs want data to exist in a flat pack related directory. And so the answer to that is to put things in a .var folder in your home directory and then point that flat pack to that, that .var directory in, in your home. So you've got, for instance, paths that used to be slash home slash clatu slash dot local slash share slash foo and now they look like this slash var slash home slash clatu slash dot var slash app slash org dot example dot foo slash dot local slash share slash foo. That is a really long, really ugly, really convoluted path. And that you will see that. You will see that in some applications. You will install something in flat as a flat pack. It will expect to find data in var, but because it's personalized data, it needs to be in your home, so it goes into dot var. And because it's a flat pack, everything is under this slash app slash unique identifier. And then because it's supposed to be in your home, it has its inherited default path structure of dot local slash share slash name of application. So migrating your data is can be a little bit of a a little bit of a chore because now you're putting things not into a consolidated.local file in your home directory. You're putting it into a consolidated.var that is then broken out into application specific subdirectories. Have fun with that. Okay, that's the default software install method and apparently the data migration path for Silverblue and, and for Flatpak. That doesn't always work though because let's say that you needed a special graphics driver and I do use the NVIDIA drivers on my systems because I paid pretty good amount of money for my graphics cards. Not all the time. It depends on the use case of, of that particular bootable system. Unfortunately, NVIDIA does not make those drivers, or, or rather the specifications, the details of their graphics processors available to people. But for Fedora Silver Blue, I figured, why not? Let's learn how to install an NVIDIA driver on an immutable OS image. It's not that hard, it's just another way to install software that is discouraged. They acknowledge that sometimes this is necessary, however, so it's something that you that you can do, you just shouldn't do too often. How often is too often? Uh, they don't exactly say. That can be a little bit difficult to, to comprehend. I, I didn't find that super easy to to quite understand, like, the limitations. Because they, they say, oh, you can install RPMs with rpm-os tree. It's a special command that leverages both the RPM system and, of course, the OS tree um, model of, of structuring things. But, but I don't know how often I'm supposed to do that. How, how is it just for the really, really important stuff? Or, or just the stuff that's literally impossible to install by some other means? And remember, there is this third way of installing software that we'll get to in a, in a little while. But how do I, how, how am I meant to sort of manage what I install to the base image versus somewhere else. They don't have great guidance on that, and I'm assuming that it probably is a little bit fuzzy. Like, NVIDIA drivers, okay, literally, no other way to do that. Like, that needs to be a part of the bootable system. It's a kernel-level type, it's a kernel-level thing, so it needs to be there at boot time. I get that, so that's a, that's a necessity. But what about Emacs? Emacs doesn't need to be there at boot, but it is something that I definitely want all the time throughout my entire environment. So could I put that as part of the host, the immutable system? Or is that, it should not, that not be done? Should I only install that as some kind of extra package? And there is a flat pack for Emacs, but as I've said before, uh, running a flat pack in a terminal 
is a miserable experience. It, it doesn't really work all that well, to be honest. You can do it, it's just not fun. So am I meant to just get over that and install it as a flat pack anyway, or am I allowed to kind of deviate from the expectation and install it to my host system? Who knows? I don't know. For NVIDIA anyway, for a driver, from for something that needs to be there at boot time, there's a, a relatively easy way to install that. It is, as I said, rpm-os tree. This is a lot less complex than I kind of had expected. It really is, it's, it's just think DNF, except instead of DNF you're using RPM-OS tree to kind of poke your way through to that host system. So for instance, using NVIDIA as the example, because that's the one example I actually have, RPM-OS tree install, and then the path to the RPMfusion.org repository. This is the exact same thing that you find on RPMfusion.org when looking into how to uh, set up, configure it for your system. So there's a configure button at the top, configure link, top of the web page. Click that, it tells you the command to run. The only difference to what it tells you to do is that it's telling you to run DNF, and so you use instead rpm-os tree. Otherwise it's the exact same everything. That installs the correct repository, or it adds that repository to your to your host system. However, remember, OS tree told us it can't change the operating system. There's no way to change this thing. It is immutable. So in order for that to, to, to take effect, you must reboot. And so you do a systemctl reboot, the system reboots, it loads, you're back up and running. Now you've got that repository existing on your, on your host system. And so then you can do a, an install of whatever kernel module you need. So in this case it would be rpm-os-tree install, acmod-nvidia, and uh, whatever the NVIDIA driver for x11 is, uh, ACMOD NVIDIA, Zorg, x11, DRV, NVIDIA, whatever it's called. I think that's it. I didn't do that from memory. I'm frantically scanning the screen for information. Um, so you do that, and once again, you have to remember, this can't take effect until you reboot, but you, if you've ever used, if you've ever had to do the NVIDIA install, you'll also know that you can't reboot without blacklisting Nouveau. So you have to tell your system not to load the free open source driver Nouveau and, and instead load the NVIDIA driver. Now it's interesting and I don't quite understand why this is an RPM OS tree command. Seems like it ought to just be an OS tree command, but for whatever reason there is a a hook in RPM-OS tree that enables you to modify the kernel arguments that your computer processes while loading the Linux kernel at boot time. So if you've ever gone to your bootloader in, in Linux, or, or before Linux has booted, you know, the grub bootloader, then you know that if you hit E, you can see what kind of weird commands your computer is broadcasting to, to the kernel when it loads, when it loads, when it starts bootstrapping your, your system. Those are kernel arguments. And you can change that with rpm-os tree. So before rebooting, you can run rpm-os tree k-args, that's k-a-r-g-s, and then you can append the necessary information. So again, for NVIDIA, I'm just looking really quick through my history here, it was, it was rpm-os tree cargs space dash dash append equals rd.driver.blacklist equals nouveau dash dash append equals nvidia dash set equals one and dash dash append equals modprobe.blacklist equals nouveau. So you're appending these new parameters to the boot environment or to the boot command basically telling it 
to ignore the Nouveau driver and to load NVIDIA instead. Again, systemctl reboot re-images everything and makes that the active branch of your operating system. It works like a charm. It, it reboots. It's an uglier boot process. It uses the NVIDIA driver. And then once you're up and running, you can do an LS mod just as you normally would in a terminal to verify that, that the correct driver has been loaded. I'll just do it right now just, just to kind of confirm. I'm doing an LS mod grep dash I because I can never remember. I think it's all lowercase. Yeah, NVIDIA. And the same command looking for Nouveau should, of course, fail, and it does. Or well, it doesn't fail. It returns nothing. So there you go. That's the second way to install software. And they discourage this. They say, you shouldn't do this. This is messing with your with your immutable operating system. Don't do this. Obviously, you have to sometimes for NVIDIA especially, or for anything that would load at boot time. You would, you would have to do that. For everything else, they're telling you that you should either use Flatpak or something called Toolbox. And Toolbox, in my opinion, is the other place that this get. But actually, all three of these things are interesting. So Toolbox, I guess, is the most maybe interactive part of this whole experience. Flat packs are interesting, but they they luckily they're kind of really easy to to do now. You install it from GNOME Software, and they just run. They're just applications. And I have to say that these flat packs are running really really nicely on this Silver Blue system to a degree. So there's a caveat here. First of all, I will say that on Slackware, when I installed, I had tried an Audacity flat pack on Slackware. It was working okay, but I had this weird issue at first where it wouldn't recognize my USB microphone. And I realized that, for some reason, the flat pack, the, the, uh, the, the Audacity instance running, you know, sort of inside the flat pack environment, couldn't find my USB port. And so I had to give it permission to access um, my devices or something like that. I forget the exact flag, but it was like dash dash portal or, or dash dash devices or something like that where, where I granted it extra permission on top of what it thought it could do. And then it worked. It was fine. It just needed, every time I launched it, I had to do flat pack run dash dash, you know, whatever special flag it was, org.audacity team or team audacity dot audacity, but with a capital A. And, and, and it was fine. Now, I didn't actually stick with it. That was too much trouble, so I just went back to a, a normal, installed, compiled version of it. But that happened. On Silverblue, none of that happened. I installed Audacity, which I'm recording this episode on right now, as proof of concept. You're welcome. Uh, and it just it saw my USB microphone. It's, it's running fine. I say fine, but I'm actually seeing some weird performance issues. There are, like, it, it seems to lose track of my audio sometimes. It sort of stalls. I can't tell. It hasn't crashed because I'll, I'll stop recording. I'll back up. I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's just the graphics aren't keeping up, which would be weird, um, or if something else is happening. It's difficult to to understand what exactly the problem is. I mean, this is the same physical computer as my Slackware install. My Slackware install exists on another drive in the same box, so I tend to know the way that it performs pretty well. Okay, so you can't tell, but I've I've had to stop the recording and and re-pick up where, what I was saying because it stalled. So it, it's definitely an issue that, that seems to be happening every now and again, and it shouldn't be happening at all. It doesn't happen on Slackware, it doesn't happen on RHEL, it's only happening on this specific thing. I don't know if it's like the drive, I don't know if it's the OS, I'm not sure what's happening. And I probably, I probably would have just chalked it up to, I don't know, general audacity weirdness or something. But there have been other weird little things, like when I go to a terminal and do an LS, 
and then I do a control P for previous command. Well, of course it worked just then, but sometimes when I do control P, it seems to, it seems to hang almost, and I can't sort of get out of whatever loop it's gotten into. And so then I'll, I'll hit the up arrow and then it cycles through my commands like I would expect. But yeah, there are little tiny little glitches here and there that I can't, can't quite pin down. I don't know if it's, if it's silver blue, if it's some kind of, you know, layer on top of, of my desktop that's, that's sort of slowing things down, or what exactly is going on, but it's definitely something that I have noticed and has affected the way that I work. Okay, so that aside, everything is working quite smoothly, and I, I, I don't want to brush past that too much. I mean, that aside, it's still affected the way that I work, but I'm not sure what the cause is there, so I don't want to I don't want to judge it too harshly until I, you know, I would want to do more experiments, maybe on a different computer, different setup, just kind of see what else, see if there are other factors at play here that I'm not thinking of. So anyway, the other way to install software then is what's called Toolbox, and it is a, it is a mutable, interactive container environment. So it really is, going back to that Python environment analogy, it's, it's a lot like that. The way that you do this is you do toolbox, well, you open a terminal first of all. So actually, slow down here. We're, we're Linux users. We're, we're, we're all friends. We use the terminal a lot. We like the terminal. And so you might want to do something like, I don't know, here I'm in my host system, so I'll do a git facl of um, this file, examples.desktop. It looks like the owner is CLA2, the group is, uh, is CLA2, uh, the user rw, group r, other r. Okay, standard stuff, not a big deal. It's not what I'd normally expect to see really on, on my system because I, I always assign Klaatu as owner and the group is always users. But on Silverblue, it's Klaatu and Klaatu because by default, that's what it creates. That's a whole other thing that we'll get into in a, in a little while. So toolbox is a command in your terminal and you can do toolbox help to kind of get a feel for for what it's all about. Itself, it, it describes itself as it's a tool that offers a familiar RPM-based environment for developing and debugging software that runs fully unprivileged using Podman. The toolbox container is a fully mutable container. When you see yum install Ansible, for example, that's something you can do inside your toolbox container without affecting the base operating system, okay? So toolbox is, by its own declaration, really just a way for you to do normal Linux things which is a little bit upsetting, right? That feels a little bit weird. Wait, I need a special command so that I can create a special environment on my operating system so that I can use it like like I normally use my operating system? It feels weird. And indeed, it, it has some quirks. It is a little bit weird, but it's also really fun. So we'll do toolbox create. That's the first thing that you do. And it pulls down what I can only assume is a minimal image of Fedora Linux. It's about 500 megabytes, so half a gig to get normal terminal functionality on your Fedora Linux OS. It doesn't take too long, even on my slow internet connection, so that's nice. And then you can enter your toolbox. So this is very much like NSenter. Toolbox, enter. And now we are in the toolbox. And we know that we're in the toolbox because it says Klaatu at toolbox. That's my prompt now. So that makes it relatively obvious as to where we are. And in this toolbox, this is an environment, and you can, as it says, you can run DNF commands just as you'd normally expect. So I could say DNF search. Let's do a DNF search FFmpeg, just for fun. And we'll let that cycle through its repositories really quick. 
course it's Fedora, so it likes to it likes to um, to update you know get the most up to date listing of of available software. And I'm doing this because you and I know that I added the rpmfusion.org repository to the host system. So in theory, when I'm searching for something crazy like ffmpeg, there should be an entry for that in RPM Fusion. But in reality, you would notice that if you did this, uh, or if you could see my screen, it doesn't check RPM Fusion. That's because we're in a toolbox. It's a minimal environment. And as far as this toolbox realize, uh, knows, that it doesn't have RPM Fusion. Is that weird? Yeah, it's really weird, especially since in this toolbox, I can do an ls and see all of my home, all of the data in my home directory. So it is very confusing if you're not aware that what may look like an overlay to you is more like an, well, it's more like a cheroot, I guess. We have changed our, uh, essentially, we've changed what our root directory is away from slash OS tree, maybe. I don't, I don't really know the tech. The, the technical details behind it. I haven't looked into it, but we're we're changing our root away from what we think it would be, you know, slash user, slash bin, slash whatever, to something different. So our new slash user, slash bin, whatever, is a completely different location. And that includes, of course, slash Etsy. So if I do a cat, no, actually, ls on slash Etsy, slash yum, slash repos.d, you see, indeed, that the only repositories in there are Fedora repositories. No RPM fusions. I could add it here. I could add RPM fusion inside my toolbox. Just take note, I've now done that twice. If I do, for instance, a cat on slash Etsy slash... No, actually, let's, let's save that for a moment later. So we'll do an ls on slash user slash bin. Actually, we'll take the shortcut. We'll just say which get facl. It says... Oh, I, I installed it. Pretend... I'm gonna pretend you can't see it anyway. It says command not found. No, no git facl found in user bin local or user local bin, user local s bin, bin, s bin, user bin, or user s bin. That's because git facl wasn't part of this minimal install, this minimal image that we pulled down when we were creating the toolbox. But we know when we were, I'm going to type in exit and do a which git FACL, and it of course knows where git FACL is, user bin git FACL. So now I will go back into my toolbox, toolbox enter, and do a sudo dnf install dash y, so I don't have to confirm it, ACL. That would provide git FACL and set FACL. So do that, I'm pretending, uh, then it installs it, because I've already done this um, in real life, and then I can use git FACL, I can do a which git FACL and it'll show me it's in user bin, but it is not the same git FACL that I've used on my host system. It is the one that I installed, or that I, you could say, reinstalled into my toolbox uh, container. Okay, so that's that's the weird side of toolbox. The cool side of toolbox is that you can do DNF install. You can just do sudo DNF install whatever you want. So image magic, sure, we've got that, we can install that. Um, I don't know, whatever else people install on, on Linux. Any number of commands. Uh, uh, core utils, that's already there. Parallel, that's a good one, that's always fun to have. All of that stuff will, will install into your toolbox, and you'll have full use of those commands within your toolbox. If you type in the word exit while at a toolbox prompt, however, you're out of your toolbox, you're back to your host, and if you do something like convert, command not found, um, git, well, no, uh, parallel, command not found, and so on. So toolbox is a container. It is a place that you have to go 
to find those commands. Outside of the container, those commands do not exist. They're not on your host system. Your host system is immutable, so it's not there. This can be really, really jarring because you'll want to use a command in one place and then you'll realize, oh, I, I need to go back into my toolbox in order for that to work. Now, you still have access to all of your local data, so in in practice, for the most part, it won't matter. But it does get a little bit weird when you're talking about groups and users. So for instance, if I type in groups in my host system terminal, I get clatu and wheel. That's the, Those are the two groups that I exist in. And in fact, if I do a cat etsy group, I see that there are strangely three three groups on my system. Root, wheel, and clatu. That's it. If I go into my toolbox, though, you probably see where this is going, and then type in cat slash etsy slash groups, I mean group, singular, then there's a full list here, just like you would expect on a Linux system. You see things like users, and nobody, and uh, tcp dump, and, and, and so on. All, all the usual uh, groups that you would expect. And indeed, if I type in the word groups, I see that I am a member of users inside of my toolbox, but not outside of my toolbox. Outside of my toolbox, I'm just a member of Clatu and Wheel. That can be um, troubling if you've got a lot of external media that you're having to juggle around group and user permissions, which I, I do. I've, I tend to use get and set facl a lot more than I do chone and things like that. So this has really disrupted my workflow. I don't know how common that really is in practice. I don't know how big of a deal it would be for most people. I think a lot of people, especially if you're if you're standardizing your systems, um, I, I think maybe it wouldn't be that big of a deal. I will say that, that my work login is different than my personal login. So even though my work computer is Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8, and my a personal system now is a silver blue, those ought to have been sort of, those should feel standard, but they're, they're not because the the work login assigned to me is not a work login or is not a login that I normally use and I'm certainly not going to change my entire sort of computing uh, mentality just because my work login arbitrarily assigned me this login instead of that login so that does disrupt my workflow the fact that there's no generic users group and there's a very specific uh, group that mirrors your username that that throws off my entire scheme for external media or external devices um yeah like usb drives and stuff so that's that's a bother and i'm gonna have to figure out how to get the the users group over into my host system now apparently from what i understand slash etsy is not managed by os tree it is something that is kind of it, it's not well yeah it's not in the os tree directory right it, it's out there it's actually it actually is in slash it is slash Etsy. It's not slash var slash Etsy or whatever. It's just slash Etsy. So from what I understand, I am. It's okay to to edit slash Etsy slash group, put users in there, and then I guess probably reboot or something, or maybe just log out. Who knows? Like traditional uh, style, and and then I I should be in the users group, and it should all be fine. And I've been meaning to do that for weeks now, and I just haven't gotten around to it. But the thing to remember here really is that the the silver blue experience uh and this sounds like a mean thing to say but the silver the true silver blue experience are the are the small failings here and there that you don't expect you know like it's it's the big stuff and it works beautifully 
and you'll never even know you're on silver blue. And that's really cool. You'll know that you're on silver blue with toolbox. And I can't I can't quite decide whether I, I guess that is not a failing. So toolbox, I think especially if you just kind of start using some Ansible playbooks and you start spinning up toolboxes and you trigger an Ansible playbook to set up your environment, you're basically treating this like really a Python environment or a container where you get the base image and then you, you automate the process that makes that image look like what you actually want it to look like to get started with. On a slow internet connection, is that problematic? Yeah, that can be problematic. It's not a fast thing when you're on an ADSL line like I am out in the middle of nowhere. So it's 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 something. It's something to be aware of. It's something to think about. It is not maybe as low-tech and autonomous as one might want it to, to be, but it is a tool that exists. It's fun to play around with. It's kind of an interesting take on managing user environments, and that's kind of interesting. And I would say that the idea of being able to separate sort of like those boring administrative, this is what it takes to keep your computer running, versus this is all the stuff that you're doing on top of your computer. That has always intrigued me, and I've always thought that maybe we should have like almost separate processors for those two things, so that some some bulk of, uh, you know, some some physical processors could just be running the system and then others could be running the applications on top of it. That idea has always intrigued me. None of which is happening here, I'm just saying. It's an interesting concept to separate so severely system from user uh, sort of environments and processes. And that's kind of what Silverblue is doing. It's very interesting to experience. It is something I think you ought to try. I don't know that you ought to switch to it for for good. I I don't know that it's wise to sit down and say, okay, next install, silver blue. That's all I'm doing. It's just going to be silver blue. Think about that before you do that. That That's a big step, and I don't know that it's this, the, the, the immediate right step. May, it may be. I'm just saying you should think about it. It, it. There will be differences to that user experience that you won't expect. And then strangely, and this is what's tricky about it, at other times there will be no difference at all, and you will insist that you're not on Silverblue. You will think, I must have done something wrong, I got confused, I didn't install Silverblue, I just installed Fedora. But you haven't. You are actually on Silverblue. And the the moments that you will notice that, I think, are when you're trying to do stuff in a terminal, because that, that, that'll take some getting used to. And when you're installing something that normally would be really, really easy to install via an RPM, now you, you realize you're supposed to be installing it through Flatpak, but it's not available through Flatpak. And then, so how do you integrate what you've installed in your toolbox to the rest of your system? And so, for instance, as an experiment, I, I installed XEyes. It's a pair of eyes that appears on your screen and follows your mouse, mouse cursor. It's a silly little program, but it's something that I use very frequently just to kind of test, uh, test various things. So XEyes I installed had to install it in a toolbox because it's not available as a flat pack. So I did I dropped into my toolbox, did a sudo dnf install xize and then pressed my activity button, uh my my activities menu on my system and typed in xi there's nothing there. xeyes nothing. So it's not available to my host system. Gnome does not in other words know about xize. But if I type in xize in my toolbox then it launches and it appears on my desktop. So that means XEyes only exists 
within my toolbox. It is usable. It's, it's integrated as such because it does launch and it works on my system, but there's that degree of separation. And I guess if I if I took the XI's launcher, which should exist in slash user slash user slash share slash applications XI's, and it doesn't seem to, so maybe it's in ls dot local slash share slash applications slash XI's. It does not exist there either. So these are good reasons it wouldn't show up, I guess, in my um, activities menu. But you're getting my point that there are there are things that I feel we would normally expect on a Linux system, and there's this kind of weird disconnect between the terminal and the graphical environment. And that's starting to feel a little bit uncomfortably like the terminal experience on macOS. If you've ever had the displeasure of trying to use the, the Unix part of your Mac system, this, this feels, like I say, uncomfortably similar, because it is, it is a miserable experience. It's not fun. There's this awkward separation between the two that 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 slows you down more than anything and so i'm hoping that there's a little bit more to done to integrate the toolbox environment with the the rest of the system at least in some way i mean maybe even if there was just a default toolbox where you're managing your system sort of and that would be your your default one and then for the developers who need to spin up those containers then there there are there are the, the normal toolboxes, like the, the disposable ones, the ones that you, you do for your, your different container projects or whatever. But not having that absolute connection between the things that I'm doing in my toolbox and the system that I want to run, that doesn't feel very Linuxy to me, and it feels like a big, big step back. Like I say, there are advantages and there are costs, and whether one or the other outweighs one or the other is it's up to you it's entirely a matter of interpretation we're still very early on in silver blue life cycle i don't remember when exactly it came out it's probably been a year or two now by now but it's still pretty early is my point there's a lot happening with containers there's a lot happening with silver blue there's always a lot happening with fedora so who knows where we're headed? This this is all this is all unlike the core OS. This is all mutable. This could change drastically by by this time next year. Who knows? All I'm saying is it's an interesting experiment. You should try it out if you're if you're getting bored with knowing too much about Linux. Go over to Silverblue. Try to figure some uh, some stuff out. It it'll be a new puzzle for you. It's a lot of it's it's really interesting stuff. If if nothing else, it's an interesting an interesting experiment. So um, get involved, get 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 into it. See see if you enjoy it. See if you hate it. Um, I don't know. I guess if you, if you want to email me, let me know what you think. It's fun. It's interesting. This is open source. This is the reason that we love this stuff. It is open source. We are in at the beginning. We're on the ground level. We're right here. If you want to get involved, you can. If you want to try it, you can. If you want to ignore it, you're more than welcome to do that as well. That's the beauty of this. Thanks for going along on this with me. Next week, we will continue with the Slackware packages. We're somewhere in the N section, in as in November. Same place, same time. Thanks for listening. Talk to you then. Thank you for listening to the GNU World Order AugCast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AugCast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. 
That's Klaatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.